take your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to talk today about being called to ministry. Now, in churches sometimes people act like that being called to ministry is a special calling that comes to a certain few. But the truth is, Scripture teaches us, the Bible teaches, Jesus teaches, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to ministry. In fact, I want you to repeat that after me, all right? So I'm going to say something and you say it back to me. Say this, as a follower of Jesus, I am called to ministry. Now, we're going to do it again, and I want you to act like you mean it this time. Okay? As a follower of Jesus... I am called to ministry. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Paul is writing to a church and saying, listen, if you believe in Jesus, if you follow Him, if you are going to be committed to living a life devoted to Him, you will minister to one another. Now, we're going to talk next week about reaching to the outside world and what it means to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world and be an omission for the Lord. But this week, it's particularly, we're talking about serving one another, helping one another. And the truth is, if you are a believer in Jesus, you need to be a part of a local church family where you are serving, encouraging, weeping with, celebrating with a group of people who are trying to follow the Lord. And Paul is going to make it very clear that that's our responsibility and a part of our calling. Chapter 12 starts in verse 1 with this kind of summary statement. And we're really going to be focused on chapter 12, verse 3. If you're following along on the YouVersion app, that's where the Scripture will pick up. But I'm going to read the first two verses just as kind of background. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your act of spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The idea here is that in the first two verses, he's telling us that based on everything he talked about in the first 11 chapters, we ought to, as people who have been saved by the living God who have been rescued by Jesus Christ's offering on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, by, as people who have been called by the Lord, we ought to offer everything we have unto Him. Not a part of it, not a portion of it, not a piece of it, not the leftovers, not some of it, but everything we have is devoted unto the Lord. And he says that it ought to be a daily offering to Him, that we aren't conformed to the world, but we have a new way of thinking. And in verse 3, he begins to tell us what that new way of thinking will look like. The first thing he tells us to do is that when we come to thinking about how we can serve the Lord, we have to first make an honest evaluation about ourselves. It says, for by grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. The first thing that he says is that we need to really think about our strengths and our limitations in life. Specifically, he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. 
Now, the truth is, we all have limitations in life, right? You have limitations. Let me see your hand. Right? We have limitations. There are things in that we're just not as good at as other things. Um, for instance, I would love, love, love to be able to sing or play an instrument. And I simply cannot do it. I mean, I, I just, I mean, I can sing, but it's not pleasant unto the ear. All right. Um, in my first church at Ripley, we were on the radio every week. Uh, our services were broadcast live, and the radio station in Ripley was classic country. Now, I don't mean classic country like 70s and 80s classic country. I'm talking 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Tennessee Ernie Ford country, all right? How many of you never heard of Tennessee Ernie Ford? Let me see. All right. Good. That in here, right. Tennessee Ernie Ford saying those. I mean, we're talking... We're talking Johnny Cash was too contemporary for this country station, all right? It's that kind of Hank Williams all the time. And so every week, though, they would break into their classical country programming to bring you the worship services of First Baptist Church, Ripley, Tennessee, joined already in progress. And so at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, they'd switch over. They actually didn't do country music on Sunday morning because it was Sunday. They did classic Southern gospel music, all right? Like before Bill, Ga- Bill Gaither was too contemporary for him, all right? And so you did that. Well, so every week we'd come on, and they'd always join us in the middle of singing. And we, uh, at Ripley, we had a blended service, so we did some hymns, and we did some contemporary stuff, and we were all doing all of that. And so every week they'd come in, our music minister, our praise team singing, and, you know, join right in. Well, my dad one week was uh, having to work. And he could pick up the radio station for Ripley in his, in his office at work. And so he turned it on. And when he turned it on, instead of hearing the music minister or the praise team or the choir, he got the entire song service as a solo from me. Somebody had flipped the wrong switch, and it was my voice being broadcast all over Ripley. Dad called me that afternoon. We were talking, and he said, I, I want to tell you something about the service this morning. And I was expecting, man, that was an unbelievable sermon. My life has been forever changed. You know, uh, we've, we, my, your, mom and I, your mom and I have decided to do this differently. That's not what he said. He said, um, I don't know who was working your sound system today, but they might want not to have you singing for everybody to hear. Now, here's how you know you have a bad voice. When your dad can't listen to you sing, you have a bad voice, all right? So I know I have limitations. And for me to get up and lead you in song is not one of the things that would build up the body of Christ, all right? In fact, one of the reasons I like being on the very front pew is there's nobody sitting in front of me that has to hear me sing. Amen. There we go. And I really like it. I really like it uh, in some services. Cliff was behind me this morning, and Cliff was singing on top of me singing, so nobody really was going to hear what was happening. So you have to recognize your limitations. There are people who are not gifted, don't have the ability, don't have a desire or a want to do things in the church, and yet they feel they have to do them because that's what people do in the church. And so they tried to plug themselves into there, and they're trying to work against their own limitations. God never intended that. 
one of the first things you have to do is just be honest about, man, I am not good at this. I remember when I was, because of my singing voice, which is non-existent, um, when I was in high school, we were taking a youth choir mission trip. And I'd never been on a mission trip. And I wanted to go on the mission trip. And I went to the um, the music minister. I said, I want to go on this mission trip, but I cannot sing. We worked through all that. And he said, well, you can join the choir for us. Listen, I know my limitations. You don't want me up there. And he said, well, I need somebody to run sound. Well, I am a technical guy. I like toys and gadgets. And so that's what I did. I discovered my limitations and served another way. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn around somebody around you. I want you to tell them something you're terrible at. All right? If you need some suggestions and your spouse is around, they've probably got some suggestions for you. All right? Tell them something you're terrible at. All right, everybody back here. Somebody have something they want to share? You just want to confess that you're terrible at? Singing? we got a singer over there. We're going to form a choir of bad singers. How about that? Anybody else? Somebody else got a limitation? Something you don't do well? What's that? Flying a plane, you don't do that well? Well, I won't fly with you. That's for sure. What, somebody back in the back said something? Spell. Up in the, that's up in the balcony. I see you don't spell well, right? So, <laughs> can't run no more? Is that what I heard? All right. So, we have to recognize those things in our lives that are limitations and not try to do something that we're not gifted or equipped to do. I mean, there are, I've been in churches, been a part of churches um, where, you know, people are on the finance committee and they hate numbers well don't get on the well that's that's a good committee to be on people that you know trying to be leaders in the church well don't do that people that um are deacons and yet they don't want to get their hands dirty serving in any way i'm not talking about we have a great group of deacons here i'm not talking about here i'm just saying guys that well that's the position you're supposed to be when you get to be a leader in the church but you're not equipped to do that you need to make sure that you make an honest evaluation. It goes along with the second point, which is that we need to find out or know our shape. All right? Discover your shape. And part of our evaluation is discovering the way God has made us. I talk about that sometimes the people that know the least about who we really are are ourselves. We have a we. How many of you have a we at home? All right? You know, my, one of my favorite things about the we is you get to make your own person, right? You, you're me. And I'm going to tell you something. When I made my me, it was sharp, all right? It was a cute little, you know, those of you that, everybody know what me's are? They're kind of cartoon characters of who you are. You make it. I picked out a shirt and the pants, you know, you know the, all the bodies kind of look a little same. But put my, you know, pick the, it was a slim, trim, good-looking me is what it was, all right? Then we went and bought this game, which I don't even know why they call it a game, because it's really a torture device, called Wii Fit. All right? How many of you have a Wii Fit? Let me just see. All right? Wii Fit, you have the balance board that acts as a scale, which I'm convinced is about 15 pounds over what it should be. And you get on the scale. and So now instead of just having your me up there that you chose, that you created, this is what looks like me, what you then have is you go and do these tests. And they test your balance and coordination. They have you put your height in. And then it weighs you. And then it does this. It tells you your real age. Your we 
fit age. And it takes all that into account, how you did on these tests and your height and your weight, and it gives you a score. And if it's, at least this is what I hear, if it's a few years older than you really are, the people on the thing start, like, crying and boohooing because you're older than you think. And then, this is the tough part, it adjusts your me to represent your height and weight. I don't like my we fit me, all right? I like the me I created better than what reality is. Well, when I'm talking about discovering your shape, I'm not necessarily talking about that physically, but it's a concept that some of you are reading through Purpose Driven Life. It's a concept that Rick Warren uses to talk about discovering what God intends for you to do and how he intends for you to work. And what he talks about here, we say in verses 4 through 8, is that he has equipped every one of us with certain things that ought to determine how we move and work for the kingdom. It says, for by grace given to me, this is in verse 3, we're picking back up there. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it to proportion his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encouraging. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So he says, whatever your shape is, figure it out so that you can use it to the best of your ability. Now, the word shape actually stands for five things that help you determine who you are and what Christ wants to do with you. And the first one of those is simply you need to understand your spiritual gifts. Now, spiritual gifts can be the list that are listed in, in Scripture, either in 1 Corinthians um, 12 or here in Romans chapter 12. But they don't have to be, that doesn't have to be all that the spiritual gifts are. The idea behind spiritual gifts are that at the moment you accepted the Lord and began to follow Him, that He, as a result of the grace of God, equipped you with the ability to show others how great He is. The word for gifts that is translated gifts in the NIV or any of the other uh, kind of contemporary translations is a word that actually means a manifestation of grace. And what the word means is that there ought to be something in your life that demonstrates to others that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Something that is unexplainable apart from the mercy and the grace of God. Now that spiritual gift is going to work with the second thing, which is your heart. You see, the Lord gave you desires and things you want to do and feel like you need to do. That you have compassion for for a certain people or a certain ministry or a certain group or a certain activity and that you just want to do that. You have, you have um, passions in your life. I mentioned earlier that, that uh, Susan's dad's going to be here tonight. And Susan's dad is now um, in his mid-70s. And he just took a trip that they flew from Jackson, Tennessee to Miami. They flew from Miami to Haiti from Haiti to Miami and Miami to Brazil. And if you ask him why he does that, one of the things that he'll say is that he never feels more alive than when he is in Brazil. That is something that the Lord laid on his heart. 
I've joked with him on occasion. Uh, the first time I ever went to Brazil was the summer Susan and I got married. And it was before we got married. And I've told him uh, that it was kind of a trial run for him. Because if I was going to be married into the Jet family, I had to have a passion for the people of Brazil like he does. And the truth is, I do. People ask, why do you like going back to Brazil? Well, it's not the plane ride. I don't get pumped about being on a plane for seven or eight hours. I enjoy the food, but by day five or six, I would like something other than beans and rice. Right? The only reason that I continue to go back is because I have a heart for the people of that country. And I think that is a God-given thing. That's why you say, well, Pastor, I don't really have a heart for the Brazilian people. That, that's fine. How's God shaped you? And are you acting on what God shaped you with? Spiritual gifts, heart, abilities is the A. What abilities do you have? Natural, things that you were born with that you're able to do. Um, able to put to use for the kingdom of God. P is for personality. What is your personality like? Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Are you somebody who likes to be around a bunch of people? Are you somebody who likes to get up in front of groups and lead? Or are you kind of a follower? Are you a servant? Are you somebody that likes to kind of be in the background? What are you doing? And then for E is your experiences. One of the things that God often used to kind of shape who you are in your ministry are the experiences that you've had. Where you grew up, what your family was like, when you came to faith, how you came to faith, what you've struggled with since then. Um, and the truth is that oftentimes the most difficult experiences in our lives are the things that God will use the most for His glory. Our biggest difficulties can become our biggest opportunities for ministry. Two of our uh, two people that Susan and I just love dearly, great friends of ours are a family named Rob and Pam Revere. Rob and Pam are live in Ripley, and the, the main reason we began to really like Rob and Pam is about the second or third week we were in Ripley, they invited us to their house for lunch. And they're one of those families that when you go eat lunch at their house, there are no cans involved. All right? Everything is fresh. In fact, one of the guys that would come often uh, to eat with us was a guy that was in charge of the Agricultural Extension Center for the University of Tennessee in Ripley. And so we often had experimental food, like a new kind of corn they were trying to grow or, you know, new kinds of beans. Let me just tell you this. What I figured out was when Pam got through with the butter and the sugar and the seasoning, experimental corn tasted like regular corn. All right. And it was always good. I mean, the first time we went out there, Rob and Pam fed us like homemade, real southern fried chicken, mashed potatoes, macaroni and cheese, corn, green beans, homemade biscuits, and chocolate cake with homemade whipped cream. Amen. I mean, it was, it was you know, that this expression in the South, it was slap your mama good. It was, it was slap your mama good. I mean, it was unbelievable. We got to know Rob and Pam, and... Uh, just, you know, they, they, when we had kids, they didn't have grandkids yet. They treated our kids like grandkids. Um, just just love them. We still do. We still keep in contact. Um, Rob and Pam, over a year before we came to Ripley, experienced one of the most horrific things anybody can experience. Their oldest son 
was hunting while at college on the weekend, had an automobile accident, and the paramedics could not get to him in time because he was out in the woods. As a result, they lost their oldest son when he was not yet out of college. We were going through this study. And I knew that was kind of background. I knew that had been there. I, I mean, how do you bring that up over lunch? You know, by the way, tell us about, tell us about Robert. We were going through this study, and Pam just started talking to me one day, and she says, you know, when I read that part about experiences being used for ministry, I didn't know if I'd ever be able to talk about it in public, but I'm convinced now that God wants to use me to help people that lose children. Now, Pam hadn't started some kind of foundation. She hasn't started a ministry that's big. What she simply does is, like a couple of times when I was still pastoring there, we had people that lost children. We had a family that lost a two-year-old. We had another family that lost a child. She just simply contacts them, talks to them for a minute, and starts to tell them, I'm here if you need to talk and tell you how Jesus got me through this. That's an example of taking an unbelievable pain and using it for the glory of God. You may not have as kind of a big-time event like that that's happened. Maybe you do. But all of us need to have that honest evaluation of our gifts and our heart and our abilities and our personality and our experiences. The truth is what you're really figuring out here is what makes you unique. And when you figure that out, then you ask the question, how do I use that for the glory of God and building up this church of which I'm a part? How do I use that? How do I use my abilities that, that at work I know exactly how to use them? I, because I've got a job and they match and I do this and I've climbed to this place. I know how to do that at work. How do I use that for the glory of God? Not just at work, but to build up His church. You've got to discover your shape. And then here's the last thing. Once you figure out who you are, you then have to love without hypocrisy. You have to love without hypocrisy. Verse 9 says this. Love must be sincere. Now we talked about the word sincere a couple of weeks ago on the English kind of understanding of it. What's interesting about this part in the original language is that it's almost like a heading. It's not a sentence. It just is it's almost like it could just be said, love is sincere. But that's not what it says exactly. What it says is, love is not hypocritical. Love is not hypocritical. Does anybody know what the word hypocrite meant in the ancient Greek language? What a hypocrite was? It was an actor. A hypocrite was an actor. And what they would do is, in a Greek play... One person would often play two or three parts. And so what they would do is they would come out on stage and they would hold a mask up. And whatever mask they were wearing, that's the part they were playing right then. And they would go off stage and they would come back on and they'd have a different mask. And they'd put that mask on and that was the part they were playing right then. And so an actor, a hypocrite, was somebody that could play various roles and you never knew who they really were. And so when it says here, it says love is not an actor. I saw a story recently on what some people think is a great actor and some people think he's, thinks he's nuts. 
You may have seen Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash movie. Joaquin Phoenix is in that. After that happened, after Walk the Line and some other stuff, Joaquin Phoenix went into this just seeming tailspin. And started grew a beard that was just ridiculous. Hair, went on talk shows and was incoherent. Um, he had a, a guy follow him around all the time. He became a hip hop artist, you know, from Johnny Cash to hip hop artist, and was touring shows and supposedly went in to record a record with P Diddy or Puff Daddy or P Diddy Money or whoever. Um, he did all this stuff. Well, then it came out that the, the guy that had been following him around was going to make it into a film because chronicling this downward spiral of Joaquin Phoenix. So they put the, uh, they, they, they put the movie out, and they went back on the talk show circuit reluctantly to promote the film. And when he went on one talk show, the beard was gone, and the craziness was done, and he was back to being Joaquin Phoenix. And they asked him about it, and he said, well, I have a confession to make, is that was just a role I was playing. For a year and a half, he played a role that was not who he really was. There are people in every church in America who have learned to play the role of being a good church person. They've learned to put on the mask or to get into character, or to switch on whatever they need to switch on when they're here. They may do it all the time. I mean, you may look at them in their lives and you think, man, they are good Christian folk. But inside, that's not who they are. They're just wearing the mask. And what Paul says here is this is the way you can discern whether or not you're playing the game or if you're being sincere. It almost reads, if you read it with understanding that that's a headline, love is sincere. The next things that, that, that come are almost like chapter 13 in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is the love chapter. And so it's telling us how we treat one another shows whether or not we're being a hypocrite or not. It tells us in the next verse that if we are going to be sincere, that we have to hate what is evil, cling to what is good. The idea there is true love will have discernment. That you'll be able to know right from wrong. That you'll be able to see it in other people. That you'll be able to see it in yourself. That you'll be able to help people to find their way to what is right, not what is wrong. That you'll be encouraging to one another. That you'll be lifting up and not tearing down. The second thing is it tells us is that love is also seen in devotion. Be devoted to one another. What that literally means is that you give completely of yourself to the other person. That your, your life revolves not around you, but around the other people that you're involved with. That you're constantly looking for ways to serve them. That you're trying to use your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your heart, your personality to serve other people. It then tells us that there ought to be a contest with honoring each other. In fact, an understanding of that second part that says be devoted to other brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves is that there ought to be a competition, if you will, that you should not let anyone outdo you in honoring each other. That honoring means just putting in high esteem. It means serving. Um, what it says here in chapter 12 at the beginning is that we shouldn't think of ourselves higher than we ought to. It speaks to things like humility. And when it comes to honor, what you have to ask the question is, is there anybody or anything in your life that you would not do because you think it's below yourself? 
Or you think, I don't think I could ever do that because I'm better than that. This past Wednesday night, we talked about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And there's this real poignant moment in that. I mean, washing the feet, we, we all know it's, I mean, if you ask anybody, do you want to wash somebody else's feet? We, we know it's not the most pleasant thing in the world. But in their society, it was one of the worst things you could be asked to do. In fact, in a Jewish household, if you had a Jewish slave, you could not require the Jewish slave to wash your feet because it was too menial of a task. It was considered work below a slave. And yet Scripture teaches us that on the night before he would be tried and crucified, Jesus is sitting at the table. They would have been lounging, probably laying on like their left arms with their feet kind of stuck away from the table, would have been eating with their right hand. And it says, as they begin eating, Jesus stands up, takes off his outer garment, ties a towel around his waist, picks it up, the basin, and starts to move from person to person, washing their feet. What is striking about the imagery there is that when he took off the outer garment, wrapped around his waist, and picked up the towel, it literally is the uniform of a servant. And at the end of that whole discussion, you know, Peter says, well, don't wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus says, you can't be part of me. And Jesus says, well, wash my body. You don't need that. They get through washing the feet, including the feet of one who had already made arrangements to betray him. They get through with it, and Jesus kind of looks at him and he says, do you realize what I've just done? That question sounds harsher than it is. I mean, if, if you're at your house and somebody says, don't you realize what I've done for you? That's not the way Jesus intends it. He's just saying, have you realized what I've shown you? And he says this. If you call me Rabbi and Lord, and I have stooped down and washed your feet, what excuse do you have to not wash each other's feet? And what he basically says is this. If I, who created the universe, who spoke and the world came into being, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one that is about to purchase your salvation on Calvary, the one who is and was and is to come, if I am willing to do the work of one lower than a slave, what excuse do you have for not serving one another? Let me ask you a question. This is one of those you have to answer in your heart. Have you ever considered something below yourself? Have you ever considered work to be too menial for you? To not be important enough for you. That's a real quick test of your humility. What is it in your life that you say, I'm too good to do that? Because the truth is, Scripture teaches when it comes to serving one another, no job is too small for us. Now, not only do we serve in order to honor, but that service and love, it's also, it tells us in verse 11, full of enthusiasm that we never are lacking in zeal, that we keep our spiritual fervor, that we serve the Lord, that we are continually enthusiastic about what we're doing. I remember watching, anybody watch the show Undercover Boss? Um, I remember watching the first one, I think it was Waste Management after the Super Bowl, and um, I still have this vision in my mind. They were going around, you know, the guy that Waste Management was going to see the different things they did, and he went to work with a guy who was cleaning out the porta-potties at the Texas State Fair. Yeah. I mean, 
If you were to rank the 100 worst jobs in America, cleaning out the porta potties at the Texas State Fair would be very high on that list. Amen? And he goes to work with this guy, and this guy is the most joyful guy you have ever seen. He's in there, he's making games of it. You know, we probably don't want to know fully what the games were. He's having a good time. He's singing. He's laughing. He's telling her, this is my job. I've got to do it. It's got, you know, if it doesn't get done, nobody's going to do it. All that kind of stuff. And he had more enthusiasm for his job than almost anybody I've ever seen. And he's cleaning porta potties at the Texas State Fair where people eat fried butter. Literally, they eat fried butter. I'll let that settle in for a while, all right? And the implications therein. And if he can be enthusiastic about what he's doing, why can we not get enthusiastic about serving our fellow believers in Christ? Have you ever known anybody that was doing the right thing, but man, they made you feel terrible that they were having to do it? Or have you ever done something that you know you're supposed to be doing, but you had the most miserable time in the world doing it? Well, I guess I'll do this if I have to. Nobody else is going to do it, so it might as well get done. I'm going to have to do it. It's not what God intended. I think even sometimes we thought of Jesus in that way, washing the disciples' feet. That he's sitting at the end of the table, the meal's being served, and he looks around and goes, well, I guess nobody else is going to wash their feet. I guess I've got to get up and do it this time. I don't think that's how he was thinking. I think he was thinking, I get the opportunity and the privilege of serving these guys one last time. Let me ask you a quick question. And we're going to close with this. In your life, what is your shape and who you are? How does that determine what you ought to be doing to build up the church and encourage other believers? And then are you being obedient to what God's called you to do?